Welcome to this bonus TLS long read produced by NOAA, News Over Audio. If you'd like to listen to more audio articles from the TLS, you can do so on the TLS website or the News Over Audio app. Narrated by NOAA. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the NOAA app or at newsoveraudio.com. You're listening to the TLS. This is A Sea Brooding Poet, Meditations on Keats' Poems, and a new account of his last days, by Christy Adwell, from the issue of December the 16th, 2022. Christy Adwell has a doctorate in Romantic Poetry from New College, Oxford, and teaches at Lansing College. Literary pilgrimages can disappoint, as Wordsworth discovered when he visited Robert Burns' house in the summer of 1803. Although the visit led to several poems on the subject of the late Scottish poet, the house had a mean appearance, as Dorothy Wordsworth put it in her account of their visit, and Dumfries made them think of little else but Burns moving about on an unpoetic ground. Keats visited Dumfries in the summer of 1818, and, in a strange mood, half asleep, wrote his own dedicatory sonnet. On visiting the tomb of Burns, describes the surrounding landscape as beautiful, cold, strange, as in a dream. Susan J. Wolfson's recent commentary on the sonnet describes its opening octave as itemising the scene in surreal alienation of the aesthetics of visiting. She quotes the letter Keats sent to J. H. Reynolds two weeks later, in which the poet describes visiting Burns's cottage as the pleasantest means of annulling self. But with his brother Tom seriously ill with the tuberculosis that would eventually kill them both, Keats's visit to the tomb of a poet who also died young seems to have triggered thoughts of other forms of self-annulment and of the short-lived, paley summer won from winter's ague for one hour's gleam. Later, from Italy, he wrote to his friend Charles Armitage Brown that it runs in my head we shall all die young. His lived experience felt more like a posthumous existence. The uneasy punctuation of the sonnet on Burns's tomb is audited by Wolfson as she teases apart the syntax over which various editors have fretted. In the end, she observes, why settle it one way or another? Wolfson's anthology of Keats's poems, A Greeting of the Spirit, is not interested in settling accounts. Her commentaries are more like meditations, a series of overtones or expanding ripples, absorbing and magnifying the effects of the original texts. They are guided variations on a theme, riffs on his wordplay. Critical attention to Keats' poetry from Lee Hunt's Passing of The Eve of St Agnes in the London Journal, published in 1835, to Cleanth Brooks' The Well-Wrought Urn, published in 1947, and Helen Vendler's Landmark Study of the Odes, published in 1985, has been synonymous with the practice of close reading. The new historicist desired to reclaim Keats for his time as a student of medicine and a man with political convictions has given his brief life more embodied weight. In her earlier Formal Charges, published in 1997, however, Wolfson argued for a contextual formalism that recognised the ambiguity of poetic language, without fully granting new criticism's claims for historical transcendence. That argument is still evident in A Greeting of the Spirit. After all, Wolfson writes, Keats's joy is always in words, 
but also inflected by the world in which one reads. Such inflections are indeed best tracked through close reading, which might be likened to Iris Murdoch's definition of attention as the idea of a just and loving gaze directed upon an individual reality. But such attention can bestow on its object as much significance as it elicits. At their best, Wolfson's commentaries offer tutorials, the word is Angela Layton's, in how to savour Keats's poetry, arousing the sort of intense appetite that Keats felt for Homer. Each commentary is an immersion in language and effect, thickened by attention to a web of references that, to borrow from Keats, one might call interreadings. These interreadings are horizontal, tracing the appearance of words across his body of work, vertical, tracking his reading of Dante, Milton, Spencer and Shakespeare, and tangential, with writers such as Hazlitt and Coleridge, or Frost and Prynne, quoted in ways that are both structurally illuminating and an invitation to the reader to practice the best kind of literary loafing. One of Keats' songs, in Drear Nighted December, provides a good example of Wolfson's method. Hazlitt, the reader has been told, described gusto as appearing to involve thinking of the past and future while speaking of the instant. And, like the sonnet on Burns's tomb and Keats's posthumous existence in Italy, the song pulls off a similar condensation of perspective. In this secular carol, the branches of a happy, happy tree in the depths of winter can ne'er remember their green felicity – nor can the happy brook in the song's second stanza remember Apollo's summer look. It remains imprisoned in its crystal fretting. Such temporal vagrancy, Keats observes, is one of the pains of being human. Wolfson places the song in context. Its composition in December 1817, just after Keats's conclusion of Endymion and the famous formulation of negative capability. She close-reads the poem's lyric form, sifting certain distinctive phrases, sleety whistle, before others, crystal fretting, frozen time. Send the reader back to Shakespeare's Sonnet 12, Keats's underlining of Paradise Lost, Wordsworth and Cymbeline. The heart of the commentary arises from the final stanza, in which the poet laments that, unlike the tree and the brook, there was never girl and boy who writhed not at passed joy the feel of not to feel it, when there is none to heal it, nor numbed sense to steal it, was never said in rhyme. The feel of not to feel it, Wolfson writes, is poetry's grammar. It is a phrase that articulates the ache of Keats's work. As Wolfson notes, he was fond of using the verb feel as a substantive noun, deploying it at least three times in Endymion. I tend to cross out this nounified verb in students' writing, and Keats's publishers, Taylor and Hesse, were just as repelled. Still, Richard Woodhouse, their adviser and the poet's loyal friend, wondered if Keats might not engraft the usage into the language. Such verbal profusion, Keats' compulsive coinages, his puns, his lexical inventiveness, are at the heart of Wolfson's book. Occasionally, perhaps, one feels that her desire to wring all meaning from a line is overly ingenious, and that by making claims for certain patterns that flatten the significance of others, such ingeniousness reveals the limits of the formalist enterprise. In a passage on Ode to a Nightingale, the phrase fade away unseen is found to apply to either the world or to the poem's speaker.
and one grasps both Keats's grammatical flexibility and his ambivalence. But to say that the grandeur of the Elgin marbles is splayed into the lettering of rude wasting is to turn close reading into a form of riddling, and some flourishes, such as two shakes of an iam's tail, will make the reader cringe. Yet embarrassment, as Christopher Ricks has pointed out, is itself a Keatsian mode, another form of the attentiveness that makes Wolfson's enthusiasm for her subject so contagious. As a series of close encounters, a greeting of the spirit lends itself to browsing. The reader can drop in on her commentaries, skip and reread them with pleasure. While reading Wolfson's anthology, one confronts afresh the perpetual magnetism the verb melt exerted on Keats, together with its participle near relations, blending, mingling, commingling, entangling, and the mixture of the thought that led to his felicitous description of a jelly stain as purplu, between purple and blue. The argument for Keats as a sea-brooding poet is new and stimulating. Once you start looking for the sound of the sea in Keats, you find it everywhere, not just in his critique of cruel commerce in Isabella, which forces the salon driver to hold his breath and go all naked to the hungry shark, but also in the undulating home of sleep and poetry, and the echoes of Lear in a sonnet on the sea that becomes a train of communicating imaginations, Edgar to Gloucester, Shakespeare to Keats. Keats to us. The changeability and force of the sea are underlined by Alessandro Galenzi's account of Keats on board the Maria Crowther in his final voyage to Italy. There was much to be endured, including cramped quarters, a cabin shared between six, including Maria Cotterell, another young consumptive, a vicious storm in the English Channel, a close call with two Portuguese warships, and, at the end, ten days in Naples's harbour performing quarantine, as the painter Joseph Seven put it, while Keats tried to keep his temper. Written in Water is less interested in Keats as a poet than as a full human being in extremis. But where Galenzi's enthusiasm for Keats's verse pauses beside Wolfson's, his integrity as a researcher is a welcome addition to scholarship. For as anyone who has seen Jane Campion's film Bright Star knows, Keats has a tendency to inspire scenes that stretch beyond the bounds of record. Biographies can slip sideways into fictional exposition. Does it matter whether it was sunny or cloudy when Keats left London, asks Galenzi, or whether his ship weighed anchor earlier or later in the morning? He thinks it does, if there are primary sources to hand. Without material, one should follow Wittgenstein's injunction to remain silent, deduction is permissible, but one should resist the frolics of the imagination. Plausibility is Galenzi's goal and the satisfaction of a fuller picture. By correcting certain errors and paying attention to minutiae, written in water leaves the door open to future chance discoveries. To that end, multiple biographies are offered within its pages, not only of the key players in the tragedy of Keats's final months, but also the bit parts the identity of the Maria Crowther's captain and fellow passengers, the doctors who were consulted on Keats's behalf, the English expatriates who were generous to a consumptive poet, and the incurable myth-makers, Charles Macfarlane, William Sharp, who claimed to have encountered him. 
the tenacity with which Galenzi tracks each stage of the journey from Hampstead to Piazza di Spagna underlines the sheer arduousness of travel in the interests of a treatment that, after all, was thought to offer at best mitigation rather than cure. After 44 days at sea and an aggravating quarantine, Keats and Seven finally disembarked. The city in which they arrived was in ferment. Vesuvius had erupted earlier in the year and was still smoking, an objective correlative for the political unrest that threatened to erupt at any moment. The reconstruction of the next part of the journey, from Naples to Keats's final stop in Rome, is meticulous, appropriately conjectural, and can, Galenzi assures the reader, be retraced on Google Maps with relative ease. Digital pilgrims may follow the route between Roman gates, over rivers and mountain passes, and through narrow streets in which the descendants of Keats's hosts sit with espressos half-raised to their blurred mouths. The journey, which takes up four paragraphs in Andrew Motion's biography and several pages in Nicholas Rose, is explored by Galenzi over the course of a substantial chapter. Using accounts by contemporary travellers wherever possible, his travelogue follows in Keats's and Seven's footsteps via the cheapest route by Vaturo, proposing possible inns, sketching local scenes and chronicling the variable reputations of the stops and posts along the way. Keats had called his summer expedition to Scotland in 1818 a sort of prologue to the life I intend to pursue, that is, to write, to study, and to see all. Galenzi's account reveals just how much rich material was at his fingertips. Roman ruins, melancholic aqueducts, wasteland, mountain roads, the threat of violent robbers, and just how much experience Keats was too ill to use— not least the cardinal shooting at Skylarks in the Campagna Romagna, who would later become Pope Leo XII. The endorsement of Keats's passport at Naples suggests that he intended to return to England, but as he hurried across the Campagna, his decline seemed irreversible. He was coughing up blood and able to digest little more than the local milk. As his condition worsened, Keats's imagination turned in on itself. The bottle of opium that he had asked Seven to buy for him in Gravesend had to be kept out of reach in case he tried to take his life, and the descriptions of his extended physical sufferings are harrowing to read. Seven wasn't Keats's first choice of companion, but we should be grateful to him for his account of the poet's last five months. They had a mask and hand and foot done, Seven wrote to Brown after Keats died on February the 23rd. I cannot get on. Those dashes, mute and numbed, reveal the depth of Seven's fatigue after three months of nursing. Galenzi observes that the absurdity and waste of Keats's death must have been heightened by the start of Carnival the following morning. It was the wrong mask, after all. You were listening to the TLS. This is A Sea Brooding Poet, Meditations on Keats' Poems, and a new account of his last days, by Christy Edwell, from the issue of December the 16th, 2022.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.